0: this is going to be a teaser for all of you we are reading a book about jim jones that we will get to eventually but have you gotten to the part yet where he they talk about how at his quote-unquote church for communion he did coffee and donuts
1: <laughs> no i, was I like, have not okay, gotten to that point but you know that what? that would get me back <laughs> <laughs> I, know. I was like you know what i'm gonna pass on the kool-aid but i will take it away <laughs>
0: Uh, I'm going to be taking it to go, though, because I think things are going to get
1: ugly <laughs> in a <few. laughs> In, like, uh, T-minus <laughs> 30 seconds. <laughs> Hello, everyone, and welcome to Reader's Digress the podcast where we read nonfiction books so that you don't have to, unless you want to. I'm Kate. And I'm Molly. And today we are going to be discussing
0: the book, This Is What I Know About Art, by Kimberly Drew. Um, But
1: before we get into that, we have a couple of announcements. But before we get to those, we want to remind you to please follow us on social media. We are at readers underscore pod on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, Please also rate and review our podcast, subscribe to it, recommend it to everyone that you know, even people you don't know. We're not picky. Uh, All the good stuff. (laughs) Especially people you don't know. (laughs) Just go up on the sidewalk and evangelize about our podcast, please. (laughs) Billy on the street style, just like (laughs) running up to people. Name a better podcast than Raider's Digress. (laughs) (laughs) It doesn't exist. (laughs) Keep running. (laughs) like, what the hell? But we also have a few other updates. Both of us, we are now a podcast who have both quit our jobs, which is exciting. Technically, at this moment,
0: Kate and I are both unemployed. Unemployed. fun employee me for like two more days
1: unfortunately and me forever (laughs) (laughs) it's actually retirement
0: (laughs) (laughs) god it's a dream
1: the point (laughs) is that we are both going through
0: fairly major career shifts both very exciting
1: but and terrifying
0: yes and terrifying we know that it's going to be a lot for us in the next couple of months so we have a few more short episodes planned and then we'll be on a little hiatus probably from november through the beginning of 2022 so that is just so you know what's going on i think we'll have about three more episodes after this one and then we'll be planning to come back in the new year with a a very cool um two-part episode so That is the plan. Season two. Yeah. We're going to start
1: with a bang. So let's talk about the book. All right. So we have a very, very short summary for this book. Uh, This is What I Know About Art is one in a series of books from the Pocket Change Collective, a series of short books on important topics written by leading activists and artists. In this insightful edition, arts writer, curator, and activist Kimberly Drew asserts that the art world is for everyone, regardless of race, gender, class, religion, or any other identity. She writes about the connections between art and activism, drawing on her personal experiences and the work of modern artists, especially highlighting the work of artists of color. Ultimately, Drew challenges us to create space for the change that we want to see in the art world. And that's all I have. Yay,
0: love it. Why don't you start with your key takeaway this time? I feel like I always start.
1: (laughs) Mine is so cynical. (laughs) Oh, mine is too. Oh,
0: okay. Okay. I see how we're going to go with this today. I am
1: so happy to hear that. (laughs) I was like reading this book and I was like, yes, I agree with everything. And Mm -hmm. also... I hate the art world. <laughs> yeah. I was like,
0: I'm so glad that you're an optimist. I will not be joining you in your optimism. <laughs> okay. I want to hear you take away.
1: Okay. I feel like this would actually be a good time to give a very brief background on my experiences in the art world. Uh, I grew up on a farm. I had never been inside an art museum until I came to um, Ohio State University, where we both met. Uh, and upon, uh, going there for school, I took one art education class that I really loved and decided to just declare my major history of art with no experience, uh, no studio art skills, uh, no idea what I was doing, but very optimistic. And I became a student docent at the Wexner Center for the Arts, which I still have a very soft spot in my heart for. And uh, it's funny because in this book, she actually mentions one of the exhibits that I ended up touring as a student docent, which was really cool. Uh, So I also uh, pursued a graduate degree in art education where I focused a lot on imposter syndrome in art museums, which is uh, something that she talks about quite a bit in this book, especially being something that most people of color or people from lower Uh, class statuses or backgrounds experience when they first interact with the art worlds and museums being a huge part of that. So throughout the book, she has a lot of critiques for the art world. Uh, A lot of them are what I would classify as systemic, being that art museums and galleries don't always have the resources to pay their interns or pay their employees enough. And so that contributes to a lack of diversity and a lack of diverse thought within the staff at museums. So my key takeaway is just that the art world needs to actually commit to actionable change. I think there are a lot of people in the art world that want to be anti-racist, want to be, or trying to be change makers in the space and a lot of the artists that are doing this work I think are very committed to it and are actually doing it. But I think there's a large portion of people within the institutions that show that art that are not actually that committed to change. I would say that very little has changed in terms of the diversity in these institutions even in the last like 25 years. Uh And that's in reference to the staff that's actually interacting with the visitors. Uh, I think they have made change in showing artists that are not just white men, but even that there needs to be a lot more change. It's a very steep hill that they're climbing.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And not even in museums, but in, I studied art history as well in school and in our education what was focused on the most was white men and Western artists. Like mm-hmm. when you take an intro to art history class, you it's like there might be a little Asian art thrown in or a little African art thrown in and things like that, but it's never, that's not considered canon, which is just like, Oh my God.
1: Yeah. I mean, even thinking about our curriculum, which I will say has changed since we both graduated from our undergraduate degrees Uh, we had to take three large survey courses and one was Asian art, but the other two were Western. So you're spending two full semesters, twice the amount of time essentially on Western artists as you are on uh, Eastern artists. Um, And so I think that's pretty telling. And I say that not because I think our school was alone in that, but rather because I think that's the norm.
0: Yeah, it is. And also something that occurred to me when she was talking about uh black modern artists is that if you take a modern art class it's you might see a couple of people of color but the rest are going to be white people and if you wanted to learn more about black artists i think the first recommendation is like well take an african art class and it's like no 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 i i don't want to take an african art class i want to learn about modern artists who are people of color right Western artists who are people of color. Like, that's not the same thing. Right. And the fact that it's assumed that, like, well, if you want to learn about Black art, just take African art. It's like, what the fuck are you talking about?
1: <laughs> and it's like, sure, that that is a portion of Black artists yes. that are important. But you're also missing a huge... A sect of artists that have made really meaningful contributions to the art world if you are not including anyone that is in our modern era you Mm -hmm. know and I think that is fair I mean I when I think back to the modern art classes that I used or Mm -hmm. that I took which I will say for clarification modern art is typically viewed as artistic work produced between the 1860s, and the 1970s. Uh, Although contemporary art or artists, I think, kind of overlaps with that and usually is looked at at, like, 1945 or post-war until today. So there are a lot of other movements within those two huge, broad categories, but that's kind of how Mm -hmm. it's broken down in terms of art history. Uh, So when we're talking about those artists, when I – was taking classes on contemporary art, I Mm -hmm. really only remember learning about Yoko Ono as like the only (laughs) artist of color, honestly, which is like pretty sad considering how many other artists I've come to know after my undergraduate career that have been really impactful to the way that I view art and think about Mm -hmm. art.
0: Yeah. Um, Also would like to point out how much hubris is involved with naming your current era of art modern and then contemporary as if that was where time would end like what are you going to call the next <laughs> i know post contemporary
1: it's like well what comes after that god yeah run out of things it's also incredible because when you're in the moment you can't decide a movement is over so when will know. we decide that contemporary is over like is it just going to the gonna next be thing the, is like, going to be like post apocalyptic next... <laughs> <laughs> honestly oh God. uh anyway uh-uh. so maybe it'll be post-covid maybe they'll decide that's the like post-pandem <laughs> post-pandem <laughs> no. i hate I it i hate it here i hate everything okay so please tell me your key
0: takeaway okay my key takeaway was similarly pessimistic or cynical i guess in that i say I miss the art world, and I'm sad that I don't think I will ever go back. And the reason I don't think I will ever go back is pretty much for the reasons you said, Kate, that the amount of systemic change that needs to happen is so great, and I don't have the time or desire to spend 20 years of my life attempting to make those changes. Not because I don't think that I could have an impact, but it wouldn't be worth it to me I could do much greater things elsewhere with my time. Uh, Much like Kate, I studied art history in undergrad, and then I have a master's in art history as well. And from there, I worked in museums for a little while and then another cultural institution and in those capacities, mostly in fundraising. And what I think is part of the reason change is so slow in cultural and arts institutions is because... Their fundraising models are focused on something called donor-centric fundraising. There is another kind of model now called community-centric, which is developed in part to start to combat some of the racial inequity and prejudice that exists in fundraising systems. Um, But I think for whatever reason, arts institutions are particularly devoted to their donor-centric model, meaning that if their donors are mostly white and don't care about or don't accept the fact that they have a, a much greater amount of privilege in society, those institutions are in some ways beholden to continuing to comfort and support the egos of those donors. And should they change and start talking about how we're not going to do fundraising in these ways, we're not going to hold galas in these ways, we're going to start making things more accessible, making you feel less elite, um, they might lose those some of those donors. And I've seen a lot of institutions being willing to make those changes and accept the risk of lost donations and knowing that new donors will come. But I think arts institutions are much more hesitant. And that's purely anecdotal. Like, I don't have actual data to back that up. It's just the sense I get from having worked in those institutions Mm -hmm. that, like, talking about change is lip service. Mm -hmm. I have not seen in the cultural institutions that I worked in meaningful steps towards changing fundraising models that would allow for more access Mm -hmm. in those spaces for other kinds of donors, other kinds of employees, et cetera.
1: Yeah. I would agree with that. I think as you were talking, it made me think too that I am not nearly as skeptical or cynical about the actual artists making change and using their voice for change, because I think that is vitally important. And I have seen it make a lot of change, even in my own life. Uh, You know, a lot of the biases and prejudices that I grew up Uh, knowing or um, having have been changed through art. So I know that there is a, a very powerful opportunity there for artists to, I don't know, use their voice for change. However, what I have most problem with and find myself being most cynical with are those institutions that should be amplifying those voices and are often not. Or, if they are trying to amplify the voices, there's also sometimes a layer, depending on the institution of them uh not paying the teaching artists enough or not valuing their skills, or uh you know, they're just kind of like other issues there that I've seen, and that can be really frustrating because you know that. The voices that are behind that are are incredible and do cause change in the world and do need to be amplified. And yet the institutions that are tasked with that are not always doing the best job that they can with that.
0: To build off of what you were talking about with like paying staff and some institutions quote unquote can't afford to pay mm-hmm. for interns or pay for labor, some A trend that I've seen, again, anecdotal, but I think a lot of people can t- speak to this. Uh, the people who can afford to take those jobs are often white women whose husbands do a job that pays them quite a bit more. Or parents so, are still supporting yeah, them. Yeah, exactly. So they have some too. other support net. So they can take a job where they're making like thirty five, thirty eight thousand dollars 38000 a year. And it's like, it. it's not their only source of income and it's not the only thing that they're using to support themselves. So generally, the people that can afford those types of jobs have a lot more privilege and less um, interest or ability to change those privilege systems because n- maybe not maliciously, but they're benefiting from it, and so they don't see the the problem with it, and it doesn't affect them in a way that blocks their access. So I think that's part of what perpetuates the 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 problems because the people with the most privilege have the most ability to work for no money. And therefore, the institutions lack a lot of diverse experiences um, speaking to the culture of those organizations.
1: Yeah. And I think we've talked a little bit about this, uh, not on the podcast, but just in general, that so many fields have become more and more what I kind of call professionalized over the past 25 years, meaning that they continue to require more education and more experience to start off in the field. And so when you go to a museum, for example, their job site and look at what they're requiring for what is seemingly an entry-level job, nearly all of them are asking you to have a master's degree and significant internship experience and that barrier to entry is far greater than what you're being compensated for and so I think that's another issue is that not only are you not being paid perhaps enough for your labor when you're actually in the role but in order to even get that job there are so many barriers for you to overcome before you're even hired in a role like that.
0: Yeah, well, it's it it goes back to the same thing that if you don't have a a different support system, whether it's a spouse or parents or whatever, you might not be able to afford to take three unpaid internships throughout college. Right. And so you might not have been able to build the experience that is needed for this supposedly entry level position. And, And so, yeah, it's it all kind of goes back. And I think sort of what happened to me, I my parents were able to support me, so I didn't have that experience, but, um, I didn't realize the amount of experience that would be required for jobs in the museum field until I was in grad school. And at that point it was like, Oh my God, everyone around me has already been doing this for like the last five to 10 years. And I'm really behind the curve. And, and by the time I was in grad school, it was a lot more difficult for me to afford a unpaid internship kind of a situation. So yeah, there's lots of barriers to like having a career in the art world. And then if you manage to make it there, you're still not being paid enough to to live off of if you're trying to do it on your own. So,
1: yeah, I think that's a really good point. I mean, I obviously am a white woman and I was in the same situation as you were in that uh, I had a lot of support first from my parents and then from my now husband uh, throughout my Pursuing of this career. And had it not been for that, I think I would have been pushed out of the field far sooner because it's just incredibly difficult to try to make that work when you don't have a support system and you don't have the financial means to make unpaid internships or low paying internships work. That actually reminds me of a quote that I had pulled. So she talks in the book about how. She was often working with unpaid interns or fellows that were grant-funded, and that sounds great. However, my first position out of graduate school was grant-funded, which means that they have a very set amount that they can pay you, and they cannot go over that because it's all coming from a grant, which means that you can't negotiate your salary regardless of whether you go into the position with a job description and end up doing more than that job description later on, and... She talks about that part of it as well, that when I mentioned resources for the art world, it's not just that they may not have enough money to pay their staff $80,000 a year, uh, entry-level staff $80,000 a year, but it's also that they often do not have enough people to do the amount of work that they're trying to do. And so... Uh, I'll just read this short paragraph. She writes, I was 23 years old when I returned to the Studio Museum, which is in New York, to manage their social media. It was my dream job and I took it very seriously. I knew how to write a great tweet, but the job description did not even begin to cover the amount of work I'd be doing. I learned how to run the museum's social media, manage interns, use Adobe InDesign, update the website, and basically do any other task that came across my desk. And that right there is... A very descriptive of my experience in the art world. I have never had a job in the art world where I didn't end up doing essentially two jobs. And again, you're barely being paid for one. And so that causes a lot of difficulties if you are also trying to job search if you're also trying to network if you're also trying to pursue any other kind of professional development because it's a it's really hard work. You're you're doing a yeah. lot of stuff and you're working a lot of hours. And so there's not usually enough time for you to not feel burnt out after your however long work weeks. And I think that's a huge part of the burnout that a lot of people feel in the field. Uh, and so I felt that was important to highlight, too. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I agree. Um, I don't know that I have anything to, like, build off of that. Stop making people
1: and... do seven jobs. That's what I would yeah. like to add. <laughs> well, and I was
0: kind of thinking about in you know, my first job at a museum. I started on it on a contract that was supposed to be for about five months while someone was on leave. And I asked for more money than they offered me because of that contract. You know, this is like temporary. So can I have a little bit more money because of that instability factor? And they gave it to me. But then at the end of those five months, I had done such a good job that I really advocated for myself to be able to stay on full time in another role. And when it came time, of course, it was like a chaotic transition. There's not a real HR department. So it was all just kind of like who What's happening? Am I going to have a job here or not? like what's going on? And my big thing was because I already felt like I like beggars can't be choosers like I was pretty much begging for this job to stay on full time. I knew I wasn't going to ask for more money in salary, but I didn't want them to drop me down to my original offer that I negotiated up to because of the contract and Looking back, the, this was kind of negotiated on a, in a passing way in a lunchroom where my person who was going to be my new supervisor basically asked me what I wanted to be paid. And I was like, well, you need to just pay me what I'm making now. And she was like, "Ooh, that's a lot more than most people in our department make. And I was like, also, I'll just say we were talking about forty five thousand dollars. OK, people, we are talking about forty five. Thousand dollars in a very she expensive at me, city. I might yeah, add. and was like, ooh, I don't know, as if it was reasonable to consider dropping me down to forty thousand because I had done such an excellent job for five months. I should be punished for it. looking yeah. back. Like at the time, I was very grateful that I managed to keep my salary the way it was and, yeah. and get a full time position totally. and whatever. But looking back, it's just so frustrating that those. uh, because of my desperation because of my I'd only been making $45,000 so I had no fucking savings (laughs) right Right. what was I supposed to do if I didn't get this job and so I feel like you're forced into these positions where you really don't see how little you're asking for it feels like you're asking for so much and then you're grateful when they give it to you and the reality is like you're not asking for anything and they should be so lucky to have someone as talented and capable as people who are working in museums, you know?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think there's a fallacy in American culture Mm -hmm. that people who work in investment banking or who are lawyers and working 100-hour work weeks are the hardest working people. And I'm not saying that they're not hardworking. I assure you that they are. If you're working 100-hour work weeks, you are doing a lot. However... I think there's also, on the flip side of that, an assumption that people who are working in non-for-profit spaces are not hardworking. And I have met some of the most talented, intelligent, thoughtful, empathetic, hardworking people I've ever met in the nonprofit world. And I think that's in part because of the people that it attracts. And unfortunately, what you end up with because of the structure that we've talked about where the barrier to entry is so high that you end up having far more people who are qualified for management level or mid-level tier positions than you have spots. And so the entire industry is essentially just highly, highly competitive with a very talented pool of applicants. And unfortunately, that leads to a lot of people being far overqualified for the job they have and underpaid, but also Mm -hmm. overworked because they aren't hiring multiple people to do these multiple jobs that they're giving to one person. Uh, And that has absolutely been my experience, which is certainly a part of what led to my burnout in this area. Uh, I think, too, as somebody who uh, (laughs) after you've been told so long that you need to do 100 million things to get a job. Once you get a job, I think that desperation that you're talking about to keep it is incredible pressure on you because you know how much you have dumped into making it to that point and so you don't always feel like you are able to negotiate Uh, like I mentioned my first full-time museum job out of graduate school was a grant-funded position so they told me up front you cannot negotiate for more money But then in addition to that, I was working so many more hours that I got to a point where as an hourly employee, I was running out of salary because I was working too many hours in a week for what the grant funded position would allot my salary. So I think things like that happen a lot because you want to show initiative and you want to show someone that you're ready for the next step. And you've already worked so hard to get to that point already that you're not willing to give it up. But then it leads to an industry where people can very easily take advantage of those workers and your labor and your talent.
0: Yeah, I, I found out a couple of years after I left that institution where I was making $45,000 that um, the director of the museum, his bonus every year was more than I made in a salary. And that is not like an uncommon story. It it felt really shocking to me, given how obvious it was that the staff on my like coordinator level were hurting, and like the absolute like callousness and greed that that has to go into an organization that pretended that you're family, you know? Yeah. For them to to try to pay you five thousand dollars less when you were offered full time employment. And then to realize that the CEO or the director was making more than I made in a year, like with his bonus, it just it, it's such a like it, that feels like too big of a problem to ever, to ever solve. Like,
1: yeah, I would also like to point out that it's not uncommon that the director is a him either. Because yeah, exactly. The further you a get up. Hand. Yeah, a white, a white man. Hand. Yeah. Like the further you get up in the art world the more likely it is that you're making more money, but it's also more likely that those positions are held by white men. And that is another Mm -hmm. symptom of the inequity that we've already touched on. Yeah.
0: Okay. So maybe I'll read one of my quotes. Yes. Part of the reason why I was so quick to accept so little with like gratitude Was because of my sense that I, the museum world is so competitive and there are so few jobs and all of that, that you should just be grateful that you got a position at all. Mm -hmm. And something that she wrote kind of reminded me of that feeling. Um, She says, my journey at the Metropolitan Museum of Art began on July 6, 2015. I laughed to myself as I walked down Madison Avenue and saw a crew of art handlers delivering a multi-million dollar John Chamberlain sculpture. I was far away from the world of my upbringing and walking headstrong into a gilded elitist paradise. Um, it's so true. This feeling of like, like scamming your way into totally an, an art yeah. institution, like, the sense of like not belonging in the place that you worked so hard to belong in. And I I think art institutions have worked either implicitly or explicitly for years to foster that sense of inaccessibility um, because it allows them to continue underpaying people and making people feel like they barely deserve to be there anyway. So they can't ask for more than they're being offered. And, and you know, it just it 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 allows for their donors to feel more special and all of that. It's it's like they want it to feel elitist, as much as they talk about accessibility, and as much as people are beginning to advocate for those things, those art institutions were literally developed to set people apart socially, and they continue to do that. And you feel it when you like get a job there, and you're like. Oh my God, I'm faking everything I'm doing. (laughs) Yeah,
1: a hundred percent. I mean, I think uh, everyone's research, if you've ever done research, it is pretty reflective of your own experiences and your interests. And uh, that comes from your perspective as a researcher, which is one of the reasons that I wrote about imposter syndrome for my master's thesis. And I worked with first-generation college students. And I think that sparked an interest in me because college is a place where we are often taught that you are exposed to things that you may not have been exposed to growing up. And uh, it's fascinating to me that there are so many people that experience imposter syndrome and I have not ever really run into somebody who's like, oh no, I definitely belong here. And I've never experienced any imposter syndrome in my life about being in an art museum. Like basically everybody I've ever talked to that that work there and have spent mm-hmm. years there sometimes working in museums have at times felt like, Oh, yeah, I kind of scammed my way into this one. And (laughs) I think you're right. It's just like a huge part of the culture that they put forth. I I don't Mm -hmm. and I think there are a lot of people that are working to change that. But nonetheless, it is still very rampant.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And I think there's like a cultural aspect of it, too, where people are very hesitant to admit that they don't know something. And I mean, that got reinforced in me in grad school where it felt like Everyone around me knew so much more and and genuinely they did. Like I, I started grad school when I was 24 and or 23 and uh, everyone around me was older and most of them had done more school than I had or like additionally just cared more and paid more attention in undergrad. And as much as I loved art and cared about it, I was too busy being in a cult, to be perfectly honest, to, like, pay full <laughs> attention to, like, my undergrad career. Those cults so, keep you busy. Yeah, I know, they really do. You're always having to vandalize the people on sidewalks. <laughs> I wish I were joking. Um, but when I got to grad school, it was, like, clear that I did not know as much as the people around me. And I... I did eventually get to a place where it's like, who cares if they know more than you? But originally I felt very much like I'm just going to pretend that I know what everyone is talking about at all times. And you get so good at doing that, that it feels natural in a lot of different settings, like professionally. And it's, you're not rewarded for not fucking knowing things. So Mm -hmm.
1: yeah, I think this reminds me of a line that I had highlighted in the book where she says, If being in the arts has taught me anything, it is that one of the wisest things anyone can say is, I don't know. And I actually learned that very early from a uh, mentor and teacher at the time when I became a docent or a tour guide at the Wexner Center. She said that if you don't know something, do not pretend that you do. Just Mm -hmm. tell the person who had asked, I don't know, but I would love to look that up for you and we can both learn it. And I think that that approach is something that I have taken with me to help combat my own imposter syndrome in the art space and just in life. And I think that is a hugely valuable uh, perspective to have that so many people aren't taught. And I think it's one of the only ways to combat imposter syndrome is to say like you know what i don't know i'm also learning but i would love to learn with you right like there's nothing wrong with learning that's a great wonderful thing that te- that humans can do with one another is teach and learn from each other and that's beautiful we should celebrate that it shouldn't be something where we are shaming somebody for not knowing something
0: right and i i think it kind of is born from academia
1: which mm-hmm. is where most
0: people who rise up in the art world come from, from one way or another, because the more, you know, the higher you are prized in the circles of academia. So it is extremely intimidating and hard to just like walk into academic circles and be like, yeah, I don't know. I don't know that. And I, I don't know the artists that you just talked about. I, I don't know the the exhibition that you're talking about. Yeah, it's I don't know what so, you're re-
1: referencing right now. Yeah. It's, yeah. yeah.
0: And I, like, sorry. Um, it's, it takes so much courage and such a strong sense of self to, to know that your worth does not lie in knowing everything, which is something that academics, I think, have kind of accepted as truth, that like the smarter you are and the more you know, the more valuable you are, which in, in some ways is true in academia. So it's really difficult to start breaking that cycle of just pretending that you know things in order to be perceived as valuable.
1: Yeah, it is really hard. I also think that often people conflate again, we talked about this on the podcast, actually, knowledge and intelligence. And you can be a very smart person, but not know something. And that's perfectly fine. But you should be willing to learn because we only get better when we're willing to do that. Right. And I think the uh, the art world often attracts people who are uh, curious and naturally interested in learning. And so uh, it should be more celebrated, but I think you're right that it often is not, and I find that to be very sad. It is sad,
0: and that's part of what leads to my sense of, like, I don't think that I'll go back, even though I, just a couple of days ago, I went on, like, a little, uh, little getaway because I'm off this week, and I went to the, to a museum for the first time in, like, a couple of years, honestly, because pandemic just really drew me out of that mode. And it, it made me so happy to be in a museum again. Like I was looking at this one sculpture that almost made me start to cry. It made me so happy. And, uh, I was just like, oh man, I miss this being my life. I miss walking through galleries every day and knowing things about art. Like, you know, if you don't use it, you lose it. And it's true. Like I don't remember all the things I used to know about art that I could just like rattle off and, and get into like a philosophical discussion about like some kind of methods practice or whatever because it's like yeah I don't remember that shit anymore like I'm too busy like <laughs> yeah figuring out how to like filling send my brain with these New York some... Times yeah. alerts,
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah worrying about <laughs> worrying about which evangelical cult is going to come for me next like I'm busy with other things, uh, <laughs> but I wish that I wish that I was working in an industry that required me to maintain those, Mm -hmm. um, that knowledge base, um, in order to, you know, navigate my job, but I don't. And so it makes me sad that it's not such a big part of my life anymore. And that I don't, I don't anticipate it being a big part of my life again in the future in the way that it once was.
1: Yeah, I agree. I think, I miss it a lot too and I think it was one of the hardest decisions professionally that I've ever had to make was to leave the field but it was the right decision for the quality of life that I was looking for and the opportunities that I was looking for in other ways and even though I'm not working in the galleries every day which was one of the best parts of working in an art museum I hope that I can continue to be a supporter of the arts, and especially studio practices for youth in my city, because I find that to be incredibly important.
0: Yeah, it did kind of inspire me to make a concerted effort to spend more time going to museums again.
1: Mm-hmm. Do you want to move on to questions? Yes. Okay, yes. Uh, so... I would love, I'm so excited about this question for you and you can take as long as you need to answer it because you may not Mm -hmm. have the answer off the top of your head, which is fine. My question for you is what's a piece of activist art, which she talks about often throughout the book that changed your perspective in some way, or really stayed with you after you saw it or learned about it?
0: the name of one of the pieces, I thought it was called Cut Piece. So,
1: <gasps> yes! Yoko Ono! Yeah.
0: So Yoko Ono's Cut Piece, it's from 1964. Um, this is one that like I didn't have to look up to remember the name and to remember like what mm-hmm. it's about. So that to me speaks to sticking with you. Um, the premise is, it's a performance art piece. Yoko Ono sits on stage in like a, a best outfit, like a nice outfit. And there's a pair of scissors on the stage in front of her and I forget how she goes about doing this, but she invites the audience to come and cut away a piece of her clothing if they desire. Or I think, I don't think she invites them to cut her hair, but I don't actually remember all the details. So she invites them to like essentially like destroy what she's wearing. And I remember it being a commentary on how much, especially men believe that they are entitled to do whatever they want to a woman's a woman's person and like her body and just such a sense of entitlement and like disrespect for a human being in front of you and, and kind of commentary on crowd mentality because the more people that took action and like cut something, the more bold people became until, you know, she's not wearing anything anymore and everything has been like cut away from her. And, it it would have be such a humiliating experience and so dehumanizing. And on the one hand, I'm like, why would you do that to yourself? Completely unnecessary. But yeah. on the other hand, it's like, well, now we have this incredible example of how disrespectful and entitled people feel to someone's body and what makes them human. Mm-hmm. So... Yeah. Cause like there are ways you could have engaged with that work without it being disrespectful, you know, like sure, know she invited yeah. them to do it, but it's like, that doesn't mean that you can like cut open her entire top. Like, what yeah. are you doing? Yeah.
1: Well, at one point somebody had, they, at, at one point in the piece they had cut away so much that the only thing kind of left was to like cut her bra straps. And oh, yeah. I remember that somebody did that and then there were other people, like, in the room observing that watched it happen and seemed upset about that choice, but Mm -hmm. still made no move to To prevent prevent. it. And it's those sorts of things that are fascinating and upsetting and Mm -hmm. compelling all Mm -hmm. in the same way. And I think, yeah, that's something that's definitely stuck with me, and I would absolutely call that uh, an activist piece. I think that Yoko Ono even though misogynists like to think of her as the person who broke up the Beatles. Now she did it. No, she uh, (laughs) did (laughs) it.
0: The Beatles broke up the Beatles, you (laughs) son of a
1: bitch. (laughs) Um, She was an incredible artist in her own right and a grandmother of the feminist art movement. Mm -hmm. And I think that it is upsetting to me that her accomplishments are often erased uh for yeah. being the quote unquote bad woman of the people. Yeah.
0: <laughs> I mean, isn't that the way it always is? Like that is how misogyny works. Just whatever. Whatever. Okay. So we're yeah, done. With 100%. That. Um the other artist that I thought of actually before I thought of cut piece, his name is Anselm Kiefer. He's a German painter and his he uses very like haunting smoke, ash things in his paintings and they are at times commentaries on the Holocaust um, and especially like the use of ash in his um, paintings and artworks are so, you know, evocative of what happened in um, prison camps. And I don't know that it qualifies as activist art because if you start qualifying that as activist art, it's like, well, then anything could be activist art. Like, I don't know, but it, I think it does speak to one of the worst things that people allowed to happen and like the grief process and and how we remember things and why we should, I don't have one piece in mind, but if you all want to look up some of Anselm Giefer's works, they're really cool.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I don't know their work, so I will definitely do that. I'm excited. Uh, Cool. Do you have a question for me?
0: Yes, we talked about this a bit, but my question is, what do you miss most about working in museums? Like a
1: lot of things. <laughs> I yeah, I think being in the galleries is absolutely probably like top of the list, but I think is like a 1A, 1B for me <laughs> is interacting with other people in the galleries. So mm-hmm. I absolutely loved touring people through the galleries and sharing your reaction to the art that you're seeing because art is incredible to view on your own, but I always found it far more rewarding to hear the perspective of a lot of different people while you're viewing the same piece because oftentimes people take away completely different lessons or uh, messages from the art. And so, you know, everything from, like, touring five-year-olds, which I've done, uh, where they're like, I love the color orange in this one, to, you know, really uh, angsty but insightful teenagers that often surprise you, which I always loved, to senior citizens who will come in and may have more knowledge than you on the artist and uh, can teach you a little bit about their background or their biography. And I, yeah, so I would say that, I mean, in every art, role that I held for the most part. I got to do that at least in part in my job. And so that is absolutely something that I miss dearly. Yeah.
0: that That's a good one. I, I think mine would probably be right around the same. Yeah.
1: yeah. I remember walking through the Art Institute of Chicago for, like, the first time and just being so uh, – taken aback by the incredible experience of that and knowing that you could be a member at one of the most amazing art museums in the world, uh, was just one of the most like stunning realizations of my move to Chicago. I was like, wait, wait a second. I can be a part of this, (laughs) you know? Um, and so things like that are, uh, definitely, uh, positive memories that I have from the art world uh, well, of which we did not touch on very much in this podcast, no. but that's, that's one of them. There for sure. are a lot. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Um, what's your, do you have a favorite activist art piece?
1: Uh, yeah, actually one of them she mentioned in the book, which is funny. It's from that exhibit that I toured in the Wexner center. Uh, the piece was by Rodney McMillan and I do not know the name of it. It might just be Red Chapel. He was a part of a huge exhibition. I think it was like 80 artists where it was called Blues for Smoke. And it was all black artists talking about and representing the function of blues as a form of contemporary art. And this piece specifically was hand sewn red leather, which was in the form of a chapel to represent a a Black chapel that had been burned down and uh, included the murder of many African-Americans. And I, I do not remember the year that that came out, but I remember sitting inside of the chapel. And, you know, I think one of the incredible things that art can do is change a piece of inside of you that can't be changed back. And I think sitting inside of there and recognizing that experience as a white individual was one of the most powerful art pieces that I've ever interacted with.
0: Yeah. Uh, I, I had this experience in one of my undergraduate courses. It was like, it was maybe women in art or something, but it was it was taught by Carl Whittington, who is the professor that took us Carl, career. yeah, I and love Carl. This isn't like um. This isn't against him. He's he's a gay white man, and just the way he talked about some of these women and the things that were brought up, it in the way women were seen and treated and depicted and all this stuff, it. It like broke something inside of me to see how much. Like there was one part in particular where you're we reading a passage about, um, like, some man describing like how disgusting the form of a pregnant woman is, and I remember Fuck feeling off, like, like and this was back in like I don't know the the like 1300s. Okay, this is how long ago this was. Oh, <laughs> well, still, <laughs> this was like back in like medieval, which just made it worse to me. It was like so even then. Oh,
1: right, right, right. It's been going on forever.
0: Well, like the only thing women were allowed to do or, or encouraged to do was to have children. And then the act of doing the only thing they were allowed to do made them disgusting to you. It, it, it it destroyed me. It's
1: called a no uh, win, ladies. Yeah.
0: So, <laughs> yeah, there's so many things about studying art and being in the art world that have shaped me forever. And mm-hmm. that, that's... That is probably what I miss the most, actually, is those life-changing experiences.
1: Yeah, I I think if you're open to it, that art can continue to change you, and that is where its power lies. Yeah. Yeah. Not that I'll be going back. (laughs) Still out of the industry, but will be supporting from a distance i would like to rate this book i'm gonna give it a three and a half out of five uh not because it was bad but it was just so short that it felt like there was so much more that could be said but that's not a knock against her it's just kind of how these sorts of of series go yeah Yeah. uh so i'm gonna give it a 3.5 out of five candy piles for uh felix gonzalez torres's uh piece that she references in the book and is also one of my favorite activist art pieces Uh, he took a pile of candy and put it in the corner of a gallery and invited visitors to take it uh one by one and it was the weight of his partner who died from aids and so it was a physical representation of the withering away of someone who unfortunately had to come in contact with this uh, debilitating and eventually fatal illness. And the first time that I had learned about it, I thought it was so incredibly beautiful and poignant and heartbreaking uh, that that is another piece that never like got out of my head. Yeah. And then I did see it in person. Uh, they had it on display one time, I think at the Art Institute. Wow. Oh, that's sad. It is sad. It's very sad. I love
0: it, but that's sad. Yeah. Yeah. Um, when I, I, I rated this similarly, like 3.5 out of 5, not because there was anything necessarily wrong with it, but I just felt like she mentions, I mean, this is probably due to the, um, shortness of the book, but she doesn't describe a lot of the artists or art pieces that she talks about, and she encourages you to look them up yourself. but you know it always is disruptive to the flow of a book if you have to stop and do some like research on something so it would have been better if if I had just like a brief like description of some of these people because it really it kept me from being able to- visualize a lot of what she's talking about,
1: yeah, I agree with that that was um, also a part that kind of took me out, which. To be fair, I didn't know, like, more than half of the pieces that she referenced, but Mm -hmm. if you're, this book is all about accessibility, and so if you're not a part of the art world, you do Mm -hmm. need a little bit of, like, this is what this is for context.
0: Yeah, and I, so, I studied 18th and 19th century French art, and so I didn't know most of the things that she was talking about. Like, I just, I was never that interested in modern and contemporary and... Now that it's been like five years, I definitely do not remember even cursory like things. So um, that made it much harder for me. But I 3.5 out of five um, horse behinds. And I'll explain. (laughs)
1: Perfect. (laughs) So the artist that I wrote. No notes already.
0: (laughs) (laughs) My master's thesis on his name is Theodore Jericho. And I wrote about horses because he was obsessed with them. I'm a horse girl. He wrote about he painted them and drew them all the time. And there's this one painting of his where it's just like a bunch of horses in a stable with their asses to him. And he just like painted their butts. And it cracks me up so much that like art can be silly and kind of just like for fun. And I don't know, maybe he was like a perv and was really into them. I don't know. <laughs> it, like there are questions. <laughs> but it's just art can be this kind of strange thing. And I've always loved the horse behind. So.
1: I love That's that. Yeah, art can be whatever you want it to be. That's the whole point. Yeah. my when I graduated
0: um, from art school, I made business cards for myself from this like fancy website, and you can have like you can put art images, and on the front, I had my info and in, like a, one of Jericho's paintings of a horse, and the whole back of the card was the horse behind.
1: <laughs> I love that <laughs> it was really That's good. amazing Yeah. Uh, incredible. Yeah. Anyway, um, pop culture. (laughs) Yeah. uh, So my pop culture pairing for this one, uh, in addition to suggesting you look up the art of all of the artists that we've mentioned on the podcast, is a graphic novel that I read this week that was very fun. It is extremely accessible. It is not for people that know everything about everything about art, which is fine. It's just really fun. But it's Mm -hmm. called The Women Who Changed Art Forever, Feminist Art. And it focuses on four female artists, one as a group, and it was just really great. I thought that, you know, the art in the graphic novel was great, loved that. And then um, I just liked the artists that they chose. Um, They talked about Judy Chicago. They talked about uh, Anna Mendieta. Unfortunately, she was the one who is often presumed to have been murdered by her husband, uh, Andres... Shit, what's his name? You know what? It doesn't matter. We're not going to give him airtime. So I, uh, yeah, would recommend it to people who are new to the art world and would like to learn a little bit more about how art has served in activism in the feminist space. Nice.
0: I love that. Yeah. Mine is also kind of a practical intro to art. Um, mm. One of my favorite books that I read in school that I learned about art history from is called Art History, A Critical Introduction to Its Methods by Michael Hatt and Charlotte Klong. So this book focuses specifically on methodology used to um, analyze and research art history and the frameworks that people use to talk about it. It's really important to kind of understand that language in order to start talking about art in a way that other art people understand. And I want to clarify that this book doesn't necessarily have a lot of um, interest in changing the structures of the art world as we do but I think it's important to understand what those structures are in order to begin to change them and to see the flaws in them you do have to kind of have an expertise in what is existing and and how people think in the art space so I think this is a really accessible way to start understanding those things you don't have to have a a master's degree to like understand what this book is talking about Um, and I, I really enjoyed it The other thing that I was going to say is just to go to a museum, just like pick one and go there. Most museums have like a free evening, so you can usually find a night to go check it out that you don't have to pay. and, And that's really cool
1: yes cosign that well thank you for joining us and we will be back with a few more episodes before we go on hiatus before season two so Mm -hmm. we look forward to seeing you then yeah uh see you soon and join us next time for more of our (laughs)
0: bullshit